There we go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Religious Nationalism Podcast. My name is Crawford Gribben, and today, Daryl Hart and I have the chance to catch up with Dave Stewart. Dave's a professor of history at Hillsdale College in Michigan and a scholar of, among many other things, early modern France and Spain. Dave, thanks for your time today, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, why don't we kick off our discussion today by having you tell us a little bit about the Spanish Reformation, what happens in early modern Spain in terms of um, thinking about religion, national identity, and, and all of this, of course, in the back of, of the reconquest of Spain in the 15th century. I think one very important thing to understand about early modern Spain, in contrast to most, at least, major European powers, is that Spanish identity tends to be very oppositional. That is, a, a Catalan is very emphatically Catalan when he's talking to a Castilian or a Basque. Any of them talking to somebody from France or England would use some variant on the word Spanish. Two Catalans talking to each other would not see themselves as Catalan, but they'd be from Girona or Barcelona. Um, and there's great enmity there. Um, various cities in Spain literally declared war on each other multiple times in the early modern period. And even within a city, if you're from Barcelona then or Madrid, you're from one neighborhood or another. And so they, they tended to think of themselves in terms of who they're not, who they're talking to at any particular moment. Unlike... England in the same period, um, France by the, the late 16th century, certainly, there'd be sort of concentric identities. And in Iberia, it's always opposition. A Catalan is a Catalan only when he's talking to a Castilian. Um, and in certain, certain ways, obviously, that's continued in the present. But so Spanish identity is, is different. It's very religion suffuses all of it. Christianity, Catholicism, which are synonymous for them in the early modern period suffuses any of those identities. But how it plays out in particular would depend, are we talking about Iberian identity, Catalan versus Castilian versus Basque identity, or even sub-regional identities? How much of that Iberian identity was formed as a consequence of the reconquest, Dave? Certainly, as you can imagine, scholars debate and disagree and argue about all sorts of things. But most scholars say that that's at least a significant measure of what's going on because these, even, Spain doesn't formally exist legally, juridically until 1715, in fact. But even Catalonia, Castile, Galicia, um, the Basque country were created piecemeal as the frontier is moved, as certain areas are taken and assimilated with various laws and traditions and so it's certainly it's a product in large measure, if not exclusively, of the reconquest, the way those countries, those nations were put together. And there's issues there about the elimination or suppression of religious difference in the early modern Iberian Peninsula as well, isn't there? I'm thinking of the conversos, Jews or, or Muslims who are either forced to flee uh, or to somehow embrace um what's essentially, I suppose, state Catholicism. I'm sorry, can you repeat that? So the, uh, a great deal of the um, religious identity in early modern Iberian Peninsula is bound up with the suppression of religious differences, particularly oh, in terms of Jews and Muslims, isn't it? Much of that comes out of the myth of the late 19th century, early 20th century. Certain intellectuals in Spain wanted to create a Spanish identity as opposed to these oppositional identities, a, a national identity that transcended and subsumed all of these particularities. And so they largely created the myth of Al-Andalus, the golden age of Muslim cohabitation, and everybody got along happily. And they then set that up against what is in many ways a myth of their construction the myth of conflict then that emerges with the reconquest, which is itself conflict, and the imposition of the Inquisition and the Santa Hermandad and different institutions. So historically, those aren't those differences are at best much weaker and more attenuated than the, the popular journalism Wikipedia would have one believe. The problem then becomes 
as historians that, that, that has very little bearing in reality, little connection to reality. But much of Spain's self-identity in the 20th century, especially post-Franco, has bought into those myths. Hmm. And so that it, it's really, in that sense, sort of complex. A lot of contemporary attempts to build Spanish identity harkens back to this myth of Andalusia, the golden age of the Cordoba Caliphate, which wasn't true historically. So, so back founding myth in that sense. So back to this idea of these oppositional identities in 16th century Spain, for instance, we have a monarch, a monarchy in Spain, but that doesn't give the same kind of unity, say that the the, the French monarchy does. Is that is that the right? Is the king the the shorthand phrase is the king of all the Spain. Hmm. But his title is actually a paragraph long. He is the king of <laughs> and the king of Leon and the king of Aragon and the Count Duke of Barcelona and the, the Count of Barcelona and, and the Lord of Biscay and and every one of those have their own currency, their own army, their own tax apparatus, their own bureaucracy. The monarch, when he changes country physically, there's a ceremony. He stops at the border, strips naked, and puts on different clothes to signify that he is moving into a different regime. He happens to be the king in a much, much more pronounced way than the king of England is also the king of Scotland in this period. They take it very seriously here. Different coronations, different oaths, different juridical processes. So then thinking about... It's not a symbol of unity in that sense. He happens to be the king of a lot of disparate countries that are all on the same peninsula. So it's one person holding many offices. Yes. But then thinking about and maybe this is anachronistic in the 16th century, but thrown in an altar sorts of arrangements. Um, what is the king king's relationship to the bishops, to each one of those political entities within what we call Spain have their own bishops and, uh, or, and is there a kind of oppositional nature, a rivalry among the archdiocese, how does that play out for, especially for Christian nationalism? The various archdioceses because they are independent. There is a primate of Catalonia, a primate of Castile, a primate of Portugal, a primate of Navarre. They each have their own, again, they're, they're independent countries. Unlike anywhere else in Europe, after the Reconquista, um, or as it was winding down actually in the 1480s, the Ferdinand and Isabel were granted the Patronato Real they're the only monarchs in Europe that are legally, formally permitted to select the bishops. All mm-hmm. bishops to them, all empty benefices down to the parish priest are appointed by them, not the Pope. No bishop in Spain can write directly to the Pope. They have to write to the king who will then forward or not forward their correspondence to the Pope. And so the, the Spanish monarchs are much, much stronger relative to the Pope than any, any other monarch in Europe even pre-Reformation. That's fascinating. Which is also going to help minimize, I think, some of the competition. The king directly appoints the Archbishop of Barcelona and Toledo. They don't have much cause to be rivals because in a broad sense, they're going to be chosen from the same sort of political tradition, trajectory, people with similar motives. So did different kings... I mean, were they devout? Did they use the Christianity f- to their advantage? Um, how do how do you measure that? I, I mean, I, I don't want to sound naive. Like, uh, boy, they should be really good Christians, and they 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 should treat the church well and not uh, use Christianity to advance their own power. But um, I'm sure that happens everywhere, uh, even today in the. The United States of all places. So I'm just curious how, uh, if if you have a good way of trying to sort out the um, the the degree to which the monarchy was, uh, I guess, seeking the good of Christianity and the kingdom or the kingdoms. Certainly, the, the consensus is is very much among both historians and historically among the laity, Isabel, Ferdinand and Isabel, was very sincere, very devout. Many, many Catholic Spaniards today 
consider her a saint, even though she's not, in fact, canonized. They just think the Pope messed up on that one. Um, but, and so there, there is, a, for example, that consensus. She is very devout. Her husband, lots of historian, he's not insincere, but he is very Machiavellian and perhaps one of the great inspirations for Machiavelli's The Prince. Um, but Isabel, for example, and Charles V, even later, um, their grandson, would argue that advancing their power does advance the church because they can then direct the church to do the right things. They can save Spain, save the soul of Spain. Does that? Did I miss the point of your question? That- no, that no, that that I think that makes sense. But does that fluctuate over time among the Spanish? Monarchs through, say, even into the late 18th century? For sure. I- Isabel, very sincere. Charles, it's hard to argue he's not sincere. He's distraught that he's so distracted by Luther he can't do more in Spain um, and distraught that he can never finish Luther off, as it turns out. And then Charles's son, Philip II, also very devout, hmm. very, very sincere. There's no real question about that. After that, the king's... Yeah, they're Catholic and they're not sort of crypto atheists or agnostics, but they're they're sort of nominal. They go to church, they believe, but they're a lot less involved directly in matters of the church after Philip II. So, Dave, if we were going to try to plot uh, different perspectives on or, or different levels of sincerity or religious motivation for some of these. Spanish uh, kings, how would we compare, um, for example, Charles V's sack of Rome with, for example, the ships heading off in the Armada to attempt to reconquer England by force? From the Spanish point of view, they're both very similarly motivated. There's a common saying in the, the 16th century, I've met priests today who still very much would say this, that God created the Pope to keep the church in line and created Spaniards to keep the Pope in line. <laughs> there, there, there is no doubt that they consider themselves more Catholic than the Pope, as the, the American sort of um, slogan goes sometimes. And so Charles, he has to sack Rome because he's got to keep the Pope in line. He's got to deny Henry's annulment because that that's his mission from God. That is part of his divine appointment. In the same way that Philip, certainly politically, he's got his claim. He is the king of England. He wants his claim on England. But it's also, and I'm not sure evangelical is quite the right word, but he, he wants to restore the true faith in England. And so any conflict with the Pope, would they would subsume it in that sense. In a way, the French would say it, it's pretty clearly political. It may be political in the Spanish case, but they see it very much. That is the way God, what God created them for. They are the check on the Pope. And Dave, how does this help us understand then the changing fortunes of Spanish Protestants in, particularly in the 16th century? Well, if there were any, we could discuss them, but, um, it's, I, I, I've, the I, first thing I had interested in graduate school was the Inquisition. I thought it was, and I spent a lot of time with Inquisition records and it, um, more often than actual Protestants, I found inquisitors lamenting that they can't find any Protestants. This guy's not actually a Protestant. This guy, the Inquisition can't find them. Um, for all sorts of reasons, I, I find it fascinating. I spent a lot of time in class on why Protestantism just gets no traction in Spain until the 19th century. But many historians would agree that there probably aren't a hundred Protestants in Spain during the Reformation. They're just not there. It's, it's, it's very similar in Ireland, isn't it? The turn of the 17th century, uh, there's a survey taken that counts the number of Protestants who have converted from an Irish ethnic, cultural, linguistic background, uh, and it lists the number as 105, only only four or five of which were actually communicant members of the Reformed Church. Um, it's really quite extraordinary. How does this uh, how does this um, attempt to put checks and balances on the Pope influence, for example, Francis Louis the Fourteenth? We often associate that kind of effort to curtail ecclesiastical power with him, don't we? 
Certainly part of Louis XIV's push for the Gallican liberties, the formal recognition of the Gallican liberties, his treatment of the church, he appeals to what Spain can get away with. But again, most historians read that as much more political, not that Louis is necessarily insincere or a bad Catholic, but it's political. If they have that, that kind of power, I want that similar power. But I've never, I, I've never seen anybody from the court of Louis XIV argue that it is somehow a prerogative of the crown relative to the church. It's simply a political claim, a power claim. The Spanish routinely will say it is, in fact, one of the reasons God created the Spanish crown to begin with. Hmm. And do they make that claim in any way going back to Roman emperors or particularly Constantine? Or is it even more just directly from God? The, the only attack, I got, you know, tried to, just kind of got distracted for a couple of days one time in one of the archives, looking to see where it comes from. The only thing I could find in the 16th century, at least, was some sort of hand-waving that when Satan tempted Christ, took him to a high place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, said, I will give you all this, that was in Spain. That's where they were, of course. Um and therefore, Spain is above or trumped. It is very clearly just sort of a, a hand-waving aside. I've never seen a serious attempt in the 16th century to elucidate that. It's just simply everyone knows it. Hmm. I, I'm not sure that the people writing those that claim that came up a couple times, I'm not sure they even would really believe it or assert that it's, it's a central claim. But perhaps an echo in the Bible where you can see this, but... It simply is. So this came up in, in our uh, pre-recording conversation, and I don't want to steal Crawford's thunder, but and maybe it you answered this in a way, but I'd like to hear it clear, more clearly uh, answered than with regard to the way um, late 19th, early 20th century historians tried to put together uh, – um, a more idealized version of, of Spanish identity in a way, or was, I'm not, I don't recall exactly how you put that, but the point being the degree to which Christian nationalism in Spain, is it more anti-Islamic and even anti-Semitic given the history of what transpired before the reconquest? Is that fair to say, or is that also a part of a, um, a demonized, say, rendering of of Spanish history by critics or whatever. Or, um, but given how prominent Islam was in the Iberian Peninsula for so many centuries, it would make sense that Spanish Christian nationalism would have different echoes than other places in Europe or Western Europe, anyway. If I'm understanding your question, I'll say a bunch of things and we'll see if any of it's actually what you're asking about. But the, the Christian identity, I think, has stronger cultural echoes in Spain than anywhere else in Europe, even today. Um, children are much more likely to have Bible names, even if your parents have never been to church in their life. Just if you look at the table of names, even today, they're Bible names. There's that kind of legacy um, the Spanish language has more words for ham than any other language on the planet by about 10 or 12 fold because it was part of how you proved you were not a Jew or a Muslim. There, there's all sorts hmm. of cultural manifestations that directly come from this Christian identity. In any conscious sense, though, Spanish national identity as it is created, really starting in the 1840s um, and then through the 1940s and into the present, tends to be anti-Christian. The Christians got it wrong. The Christians, they they destroyed this this wonderful Clemencia where everyone got along and it was harmony, and that was the problem. The clerics are the problem. Hmm. That's why we're poor and backward. Even in the 19th century, why are we poor and backward? The rest of Europe is industrializing, is moving forward. We're poor and backward. It's the church's fault. It's the church's fault. So to the extent that there's an identity that is not Castilian writ large, which is a different notion of Spanish identity, but something that is not Castilian or Catalan, not any one region, it, it tends to be grounded in 
some sort of rejection, criticism of Christian heritage, Christian identity, Christian history. Uh, did you want to follow up on that, Crawford? Was that part of what you were? I was going to move in a slightly different direction, Daryl. Sure, go ahead. But, but I was going to ask um, Dave about um, early early efforts to extend this reconquest into the new world. In a way, there's a kind of continuity there, isn't there, between um, the recapturing of the Iberian Peninsula and also the, the beginnings of exploration uh, in, in, in the new world. To what extent was that driven by any kind of religious zeal, particularly a religious a zeal for religious nationalism? Certainly from the Crown's point of view, it is very much religious. It is, juridically, legally, it is an extension of the Reconquest. They're doing it under the, the permission, the aegis of the Pope. It is a capital offense, for example, for any ship to leave European waters without a priest on board. Hmm. And I don't know that they enforce it 100%, but there are cases where captains of ships are executed because they don't have a priest. The crown takes this seriously. Um, they stop at one point. Charles V stops all conquests in the New World for uh, almost 10 years because we've got to sort out, do Indians have souls? Do they not? We've got to do this right. The crown takes it very seriously. As you can imagine, in the real world, what what does... Joe on the ground, Joe conquistador, he is a lot, that, that's always attention. He is not necessarily irreligious. That is not what he's thinking when he's carving out his personal holding somewhere in the Yucatan. So there, there is that tension between the state and what's going on on the ground. But it's pretty clear the state does take this very seriously. They see this as their mission. They, they need to convert the world. So following up then, just briefly, I, sorry to interrupt, Crawford, um, but to go back to your answer in the pre, to the previous question, with the rise of Spaniards in the 1840s trying to create a national identity that is uh, – and blaming Christianity for, for the backwardness of the country, I'm curious what those critics do with – the Spanish Empire, as great as it was under Christian auspices and motivation, do they see a sort of a tension there uh, between denigrating Christianity on the one hand and then also this may be the time of Spain's greatest influence, at least in an imperial way? A, a lot of this is preceding from the, the reality that they have to acknowledge they don't have an empire anymore. Hmm. And so, to a large extent, they dodge that question. We don't have an empire. The Revolution of 1820 is sparked hmm. by Ferdinand trying to reconquer Latin America and the army refusing to go, which is the genesis of this. What are we then? Ultimately, that's what they're trying to answer in the 19th century. We're not an imperial power. We're not God's missionary activity in the world. What does it mean to be Spanish? In that sense, not necessarily in the answer, not at all in the answer, but it, there are echoes of England in the 1950s. What is England after World War II when there is no British Empire? Hmm. There are answers to that question, but we haven't articulated. England has been the empire for 100 years or more. Spain has been the empire for 200 years. By the 1820s and 30s, it's obvious we don't have an empire. We are not major players in Europe. So they, they basically they dodge that question there. Well, in case you, in case you, that's irrelevant. We're talking about Spain. In case you didn't notice, Boris Johnson was large and in charge up front and center in those G7 photos yesterday. So England's back, just so people out there know. But he was the host, Daryl. He had to be in the center of the picture. Okay. <laughs> let's, not, let's not get too carried away with ideas of England's greatness. Right, but why was – why was – Angela Merkel so far removed to his, I guess, his left there. That was anyway. <laughs> um, did, did you want to ask? Yeah, I did, did, Dave, just um, the, the way you're describing Spain there and the emergence of Spanish nationalism um, in the early 19th century. 
Uh, very often, scholars of nationalism argue that it's a product, as an ideology, nationalism is a product of the French Revolution. So how, how do we see the French Revolution impacting upon, obviously, Spain and Portugal in similar but, but distinct ways? And, and how, how then is this sense of nationhood developed in its aftermath? Who, who's pushing for this almost anti-clerical view of the Christian past? And how, how does that anti-clericalism work alongside what you've been describing as the, the, the real popularity of the Christian religion in this part of the world? For one thing, it's not the, the primary answer to your question, but the first thing that occurs to me is that it is not a coincidence in the 19th century when Protestantism makes, such as it has ever made, inroads in Spain. Because there are those people who buy into this notion, we've got to reject the past, we need some new something to define the nation that is not any one of the nations. And that it, it, it sort of dovetails nicely with British efforts, the, the, the British Bible Society and the overseas missions and all those different British societies that are very actively trying to evangelize Spain. Hmm. Protestantism then, again, to the extent it ever takes off, takes off in the 1850s. And, most historians read that as those people, basically conservative. They want to be anti-clerical, but not anti-Christian. Protestantism is the way, the way out of that dilemma. Because there, there never is, and it, most historians would argue it's still the problem today in Spain, there is no ultimate answer to your question. What is the Spanish nation? There, there isn't an answer to that that doesn't involve Catalan or Castilian or Basque. And it, Why should it be Catalonia be independent then? Why can't it just be straight, a direct part of the European Union? Portugal is independent. Why can't – there isn't a clear answer. What makes Spain Spain? That's the problem even today. And the, the impact of the French Revolution, Dave, how does that push towards this new anti-clerical, anti-clerically driven, almost secular view of, of, of the nation or, or of the, the community? The, the French Revolution actually has very little – impact. If anything, it makes Spain more conservative. We don't want to be those crazy people. Um, in much the same way that Spain dodged the the worst, from their point of view at least, of the Reformation, they dodge, for similar reasons, they're going to dodge the worst of the French Revolution. And then the French invasion, Napoleon's invasion, is going to very much this massive wave of um, pro-monarchy, monarchical, the guerrilla movements, they're all fighting in the name of the king. They're defending their traditional, at least in rhetoric, they're defending the church, the king, and the people. And so it, there's a reaction against what they see as the crazy anti-clericalism, the cult of reason, that sort of thing, in the French Revolution. But again, it has almost no traction in Spain, even among intellectuals. Nobody's buying into Jacobin ideas in Spain. Yeah. So I so doubt you'd find any more Jacobin. The Protestants of the Reformation. Yeah, interesting. So, so this idea of, of Spanish nationalism then is very much nineteenth-century construct, and it's it's not it's not really resting on Christian foundations. It's it's resting on some kind of critique of Christian tradition. Is that fair to say? As Spanish nationalism, to the extent that they've tried to construct it, really it, it is resting on nineteenth-century liberalism. So, and so democracy, representative government, these sorts of things, freedom of religion, and thus you know, we need to diminish the role of the Catholic Church. And for many, that's all clericalism means, is disestablish it as an established church. Not, I don't, I don't want to burn any monasteries so, in the 19th century. So, so Dave, to take that idea and to go back to the earlier part of our conversation, What's the best way of describing the very religiously orientated collective identity that exists ac across, or is promoted at least, across the different regions, uh, perhaps even nations within what becomes Spain? Is it is it appropriate to call it nationalism? Or is it a different kind of sense of collective belonging? Or is there in fact no sense of collective belonging and simply the exertion of power. I, I know of no historian of early modern Spain who would use the word nationalism. It, it's always identity. Identity, probably 95% of the time, it's identity. I, identities, oppositional identities, 
concentric identities, but it's always identity more than nationalism, which has 19th century sort of connotations of the abstraction. There's not the abstraction out there. The Spanish state as some sort of abstraction to which I owe loyalty doesn't exist. For many people, even today, which again is one of the central problems with the Spanish state. But when you when you use the word identity, Dave, identity of what? And again, it's this oppositional. Who am I? Ultimately, how do we answer that question? If I wander into your village, who are you? If I'm from the next village, I'm going to get a different answer than if I'm from a different national, ethnic region, linguistic region. Then if I'm from England. They're not going to be untrue. They're not lying to me at any level, but they don't consciously, Spaniards in the early modern period aren't consciously thinking of themselves as Spaniards. And even if, for example, if you, you wandered into a French village in the Dordogne in 1650s, who are you? I'm from this village. Are you French? Well, yeah, of course. If you asked a Catalan or a Castilian, somebody living in Andalusia, somebody living in Galicia in 1650, are you Spanish? They would correct you and say, I'm a subject of the Spanish monarch. But they they tend to push back, and, and there's lots of visitors. They, the great English tours, the French guy, rich people going on these tours, and they ask this question all the time, and there, there's always pushback in Spain. I'm not Spanish. I'm a subject of the Spanish monarch. Whereas in France, you don't get that. If you ask an Englishman in the, the West Midlands in the 17th century, are you English? Well, yeah. They, they wouldn't object to that characterization. And they wouldn't correct you to say, I'm only a subject of the English monarch. So from what I hear you saying, Dave, it sounds as if the categories, the standard ones used for talking about nationalism, whether ethnic or civic nationalism, really don't make sense of Spain. Certainly not very modern Spain. Yeah. They, they may make more sense, not perfect, but more sense in our world, contemporary to us. But certainly in early modern Spain, it, it doesn't it doesn't map the same way at all. And that's because what makes more sense today would be a civic nationalism or in the 20th century. Or an ethnic one. Okay. Two cities in Catalonia are not going to declare war on each other today. They're Catalan, or they don't see themselves as Catalan, but there's not these sort of layered identities operative nearly as much. And related to that, aside from nationalism, was there ever a federalist option for trying – I mean, again, I'm not trying to sound like the um, the gung-ho American here. It isn't America great because we have federalism, but – it is a, it is a um, curious, in some ways remarkable effort to try to create a kind of unity while also recognizing diversity. And was is there any kind of uh, paper trail of efforts to create a kind of unity with federalism in the nineteenth century? Spain, in the course of the nineteenth century, I think it's thirteen different written constitutions are formally promulgated, and three of those are Federalist. Hmm. But they all collapse very quickly, as do the non-Federalist ones, as it turns out. The 19th century is disordered, but Federalism, as it's been tried in a particular instantiation, has not worked. Is it because it's too abstract? Uh, or Partly, again, one of the, the big problems is this counter-identity why is, from us on the outside, we see Catalonia as a natural region. But if you're a Catalan, why, why are we a region? Why is my town subject to Barcelona? Catalonia is actually four regions within Catalonia. Why shouldn't they be co-equal? But within each of those regions, there are sub-regions that could argue the same thing. Federal, the, the logic of federalism, if you buy into it at all, tends to very, very granular level of federalism which in practice can't work. Hmm. Well, the, economic realities and political realities as well in the 19th century, but that, that's m many people believed it was doomed from the start, even before you get into the rise of anarchism and um, the industrial revolution and these sorts of things that are going to just further complicate the issue. 
Well, speaking of those um, difficulties, uh, maybe this is a good, as good a transition as any to fascism and the place of religious identity among Frank within Francoism, anti-clericalism among Republicans, shifting ahead to the 20th century. What what? What kind of identity, religious or otherwise, makes sense of those competing political um, foes? From the 1890s on, there is a, a, a minority, but strong and present minority in all the Spanish cities of anarchism. Which, and they are very aggressively anti-clerical, anti-religious. They are the sort that they want to physically tear down churches. Hmm. They are a major element then in the Second Republic, which is one of, one of the things that's going to precipitate the generals rising, leading to the Spanish Civil War, is they're trying to defend the church. Because by this point, unlike 19th century anti-clericalism, now it is a, a, a destructive oppositional anti-clericalism. I want to kill priests. And once the Civil War begins, then that, in fact, starts happening um, as a social group. Estimates vary widely, but 30 to 60 percent of priests are killed during the Spanish Civil War. Wow. Um, they, they are going to be explicitly targeted. And, of course, there's certain chicken and egg, but is that because they're perceived as being pro-Franco? But, um, but one of Franco's claims to the day he died is that he was defending the church. And so that, that's part of what's motivating him. And by that point, that is bound up in sort of a political vision of conservatism. The world is changing around us. And many historians would argue that the problem in Spain in the 20s and the 30s, as in lots of places in Europe, is the political middle is basically evaporating. You've got anarchists and, and hardcore Stalinist Trotskyites on one side, and you've got people like Franco on the other. And there, there, there is no middle. Given that choice, then, Many Spaniards are going to find Franco more appealing or less unappealing than the so-called Republic. And how pro-Franco would the church have been, either thinking about the episcopacy or lay people, uh, priests, religious? Is it is it fair to say, characterize all of them as... Pro-Franco or? If one is a devout Catholic, during the Civil War itself, there's a 95% chance that you are pro-Franco. Overwhelmingly, the, 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 if you're the sort of person that attends Mass every week, you're rooting for Franco. Depending where you are in Spain, you may or may not join his forces, but you very, very much want Franco to win. You want those godless Trotskyites to lose. The The Clerics, especially the, the high clerics, the bishops, they try to be nuanced. Like, Franco is defending things that are good, but we're not defending Franco. Those subtleties are lost on pretty much everybody, okay. you imagine. Especially once Hitler and Mussolini start supplying Franco, then it, it's all just dismissed as window dressing. Franco, though, once the war is over, Franco works very hard to marginalize the fascist. I will assert, and, and most people who have studied Franco, actually professional historians, say Franco's not a fascist. Fascists are one of his bases of support. So is the church. He creates the national movement, and there's these four different elements. There's the traditionalist, there's the church, there's the fascist. He's got these different elements there. And he plays them again. He's a master politician. He's very Machiavellian in that sense. He plays... The church, Opus Dei, against the phalangists, against the raquetes, the, the traditionalists, Carlists, the monarchists. So he's playing these groups against each other because Franco very much by this point has a vision of a Spain, this mythic Spain of the past. He, he wants to recreate Spain as he understands it as a 16th century. I, I tell my students as a bumper sticker sort of thing. Franco is a 16th century monarch born 400 years too late. He very, very much wants 
And so as a sop to the modern world, he's going to claim that there is religious freedom. There's not. Protestants are free to go to church as long as they don't own property, make any noise, have any signs, and don't tell anybody that's what they're doing. I mean, that's his idea of religious freedom. Franco, as I suspect you guys know, signs the last concordat the papacy has, at least so far, ever had with a country. The, the 1953 concordat, which is something straight out of Charles V. Hmm. Franco can appoint the bishops, and Franco gets all the revenues of the church, and Franco will police the church, and it, it is a very old school. Franco is a devout 16th century Catholic. Hmm. And he sees himself as saving Spain, and for him, Spain is very much a Christian republic in the little r, early modern sense of republic. This in turn is why many people today are sort of passively anti-clerical in Spain. Franco was so pro-church, much more than the church was pro-Franco. Franco was so pro-church. Many people today, if you're not a very devout Catholic, tend to be very anti-clerical in Spain today because of the association with Franco. Oh, the church back Franco, which is not entirely fair. The church is one of the major oppositions to Franco, actually, as well. They didn't let him get away with crap sometimes. But the, again, the perception, which is different than reality, the perception, the church back Franco. And so if, and I've seen polls, people do have these polls all the time saying, what, who do you consider the greatest threat, the biggest problem in Spain today? Asking Spanish citizens, the church never comes up. If you ask specifically, pollsters that ask specifically, what do you think of the church? Is the church a threat? They'll get 80, 90% yes. There's a huge, that's what I would call sort of a passive anti-clericalism. If you ask me, oh yeah, now that you mention it, I very much oppose the church. But Franco does a lot to identify that. Most Protestants in Spain today will identify on the census as Catholic because they're Spanish. Yeah. If you're at all religious, those two have become coterminous. So this this may be something of an odd question, but I'll throw it in here, and you can take the fifth if you'd like. <laughs> but what you were saying earlier about early modern Spain and its Christian identity, um, and in some ways you could argue a kind of maybe a model for, for um, Roman Catholic society. I could imagine with, say, people, Roman Catholics in the United States who are critical of liberalism, looking at Spain, trying to recover parts of that perhaps for thinking about a, integralists may do this or just critics of liberalism per se. But I don't see much reference to a kind of Spanish Roman Catholicism as a model or as part of the imagination of conservative American Catholics. And I, and I spit, I suspect that the reason for that is the, the major taint that Franco plays in all this, that it's hard to try to point to Spain as some sort of model for uh, the way church and politics or church and state can relate without having to also then think about Franco. I agree with you. I would add to that and the stereotype of the Inquisition. Hmm. You want 17th century Spanish society? You want the Inquisition? Which, again, the Inquisition is not what most of us think it is, but I would say in addition to Franco, anywhere you point in Spanish history, there's this sort of black legend. There is the Inquisition. There is Franco. What has happened, in, if more people knew what happened in fact, I think they would find it much more interesting. Yeah. Probably still utterly useless in the American context. Because early modern Spain is very, very homogenous. Yeah. So coming back to closer to the present and the post-1970s um, constitution and um, but also thinking about separatism, in Spain, is there is there a religious component, um, or, or how does how does religion fit in the new constitution that comes out of the 1970s? I don't know the specific date, and is there a degree to which uh, separatists themselves identify 
with the church or, or part of part of their identity is trying to recover a Christian one as well. It sounded like you said earlier that there's much more anti-clericalism, but maybe I confuse that with another group that you had mentioned. Everybody in Spain agrees that they're anti-clerical. Even many of the clerics, it's, it, it can be really entertaining sometimes. The Constitution recognizes Roman Catholicism as the religion of the majority of the Spanish people, but grants full religious autonomy, freedom, freedom of religion. More to the, the, I think, the important bit of your question. Almost any Spanish identity, one way or another, whether it's the created one in the 19th century, these much older, I am a Catalan, I am a Castilian, I'm a Basque, they all ultimately go back to Christian stories, Christian narrations, and it actually fascinates me. I, I love to read children's books when I'm, whenever I'm in Spain, just to see how they treat this. What is it? Where does Catalonia come from? Catalonia is born in the Reconquista. And Wifreya Pelos is, he's sacrificing himself to stop a Muslim army, and he's going to defend, and his blood will be shed for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. And it, it fascinates me that they'll say these things. So you get a, a very secular, a religious, even anti-religious Catalan. Where is Catalonia born? And they'll tell you this story with all the religious symbolism there. And this is what he said, and he was dying for God, and he was going to defend the Christian faith. And but it has—it doesn't even have any impact today. Like it's just a story. And that guy really believed it. But hmm. so I, I don't even know how to. To answer your question in that sense, there is very clearly and explicitly still a Christian origin for all these identities. But it doesn't seem to have any traction with them. It doesn't matter to them. Catalan is fundamentally born in a struggle. Castilian is born in the struggle to reconquer Iberia, to do God's work. But anyway, and then <laughs> that has no purchase on the present. Well, Dave, can I follow up just on that point? There, there has been, over the last maybe five years, maybe slightly more, uh, a, a drift towards the right in many in many parts of European politics. And obviously, parties like Vox have done very well in Spain. Um, a minor party, but but a significant enough, um, some significant enough results. How do we understand that in terms of, of, of religious nationalism? Is religious nationalism dead and gone in Spain? Uh, the Catalan nationalisms, the more right-wing nationalisms that might emerge, for example, the protests around the effort a couple of years ago to move Franco's, you know, the, the Franco Memorial. Uh, you know, are, are, are these are, are these to be understood as as episodes in or reactions to some species of of Christian nationalism, or is it just gone altogether? I think if one is a Christian. In Spain, particularly a Roman Catholic, then there are ways in which any of those narratives, whichever particular one one might embrace, make a lot of sense. But I don't think you have to be, you don't have to accept any sort of pre Christian presupposition to simply be a Castilian nationalist or a Catalan or Basque or, um, I don't think it's a necessary precondition, but it, it doesn't exclude, we could both be members of the same faction or movement and have very different views about it mm. is not even real. Um, a lot of people argue that's ultimately one of the major reasons that, for example, the ETA fell apart. Because ETA was very explicitly not just anti-clerical, but pro-Marxist, there is no God, we will abolish the church when we come to power. And they had a hard time ever getting above a certain level of support in the Basque country, even though I agree with their political ends, they want to make us free, but those claims, and a lot, a lot of scholars say that those were major stumbling block to Edda, is they made those claims, I guess we give them credit for being honest, but they, they we will shut down the churches. Hmm. And that, and that for many Spaniards in any context is going too far. I will never ever go to one, but we're Spaniards, of course we're Catholic, of course we have churches. I haven't been since I was six, but of course we're Catholic and we have churches. Again, why so many Protestants identify as Catholic. I'm a Catholic Reformed. Huh. I met Catholic Presbyterians, that they would identify themselves that way. 
member of a Presbyterian church in Spain, been attending for 20 years, grew up in it, have never been to Mass, and they're Catholic because they're Spaniards. Which I, I don't know of an equivalent in America, maybe just a Christian in some general sense. All Americans are Christian no matter what, maybe, but. Well, th- thanks, Dave. This has um, been very helpful and uh, fascinating. And I feel like we've only skimmed the surface uh, that you could have taken us into great, greater depth, even though the your interlocutors are on that surface level. But um, as part of our general inquiry into religious nationalism in different parts of the world, um, particularly Christian, but other varieties, this has been very helpful uh, to think about the way Christianity played out in a place like Spain and beyond. So thanks for being with us. And um, maybe we'll have you on again sometime, especially if something breaks in Spain that we need, need some. Uh, There's always a good break in Barcelona. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. I've written a, a, a recent book on, Christianity in Ireland, uh, if you want to talk about that in any way or or just reflect more generally about what what you learned about Spain in this session. Yes, yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting case study of religious self-definition, isn't it? Because obviously the Spanish Empire is such a big, big player in um, both Mediterranean and Atlantic politics in the 16th, even into the 17th centuries. Um, so, you know, to be to be reminded that in fact there's a kind of an, a national absence at the heart of that identity is is very striking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something I would probably need to know more about. Um, I'm certainly, I, I, I certainly take Dave's point about the significance of the Spanish monarchy as a composite monarchy. Uh, and of course, there, there's lots of those in Europe at that time. Um, the you know the, the one I'm most familiar with, obviously, is the one that holds these kingdoms together. But but also Dunkirk, and also you know later on some uh, lands in North America, and so on and so forth. So I mean, I, I suppose you could say, obviously, paying attention to the fact that historians and political scientists want to push nationalism as an ideology past the French Revolution. There is still some kind of national self-consciousness at this point. So I, I, I would I, I would like to have a clear idea of at what point that becomes a nationalism. But even what, what, what different roles that kind of national self-consciousness and a nationalism might play. Uh, do, do they, does this kind of early modern religious national self-consciousness and a post-French Revolution religious nationalism, do they do the same things for people or do they do different kinds of things for people? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not clear about that. And, I, you know, I was, I was sort of trying to poke around that idea um, in, in, in the conversation a little bit. I mean, I suppose when you come to the 20th century, it's the, the, you know, the 1930s experience is, is very striking and very, I suppose, easy to categorise between the two sides in the Spanish Civil War. But then, you know, Dave's point that, what, 98, 80, 90 years later, whatever the maths is, uh, the, the echoes of these positions are still undercurrents in some ways in Spanish politics is significant. But also significant, I think, his point that you can pretty much select any one of these nation- any one of these identities and invest within it your own particular religious brand um, and 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 it still it still works. So, I suppose this conversation has left me a bit more puzzled than I was when I began because I'm not totally clear now whether there is such a thing as religious nationalism in Spain, yeah, or whether religion has simply been put to the service of different kinds of agendas, many of them incompatible with each other. Some of them serving the nation, some of them regional, some of them. Um, you know, at, at different points in the political spectrum as well, but all of them equally able to use religious motifs when it suits their needs to do so. But perhaps, perhaps that's just bound up with in, in the irony of 
um, a, a, a nation, as Dave describes it, that's really suffused with religious values in terms of what they name their children, for example, um, Christian names, biblical names, but yet also a nation that's deeply, deeply anti-clerical. Yeah. I guess on the other side of that, it, it um, the political side of this, thinking about Spain in relationship to France, the last episode, but then also to the British monarchy um, and the way in which France, the French monarchy, as I've come to understand, it was able to give a kind of national identity and to achieve real solidity to that and unify a very big part of uh, Western Europe, big landmass. And Spain, um, Spanish monarchy doesn't do that in the same way because it still had these regional uh, identities that are even oppositional, as Dave said, and then comparing that to the UK where um, you have these major battles in the 17th century over uh, the crown's power and, and parliament more or less triumphs and uh, you have the separation of powers that Americans love and all that uh, paraphernalia but you still have in the case of the English monarchy uh, to this day a kind of totemic quality to that I mean, yes, I've watched The Crown. Yes, I'm a big fan of the, of the Netflix series The Crown. But it still seems that among European monarchs, Elizabeth stands out in ways that other monarchies do not. That has to do something with the press and the like. But still, it seems that in the minds of British people, and you can speak to this yourself, that the monarchy is, is kind of a symbol, is um, symbolic – to the Brits in ways that the Constitution is symbolic to Americans. And if you start to pull at that, you're going to undo a national identity. And, you know, the Constitution for us is not as much bound up with religious struggles. It's in the backdrop in some ways, especially when it comes to the First Amendment. Um, but in, in the case of English, Scottish, Welsh, Irish history, uh, the monarchy is very much bound up with religion, the church, in ways comparable, in, in ways to uh, France and Spain, even though after 1534, it's largely on Prote in Protestant context, which is also just a very different kind of animal than Roman Catholicism. So... Uh, it is. As I say, history is endlessly, endlessly fascinating, yeah. but I mean, I, I don't want to just simply marvel at this. I think it goes to your point as well that it's very hard to generalize about about these things and try to come up with something about nationalism, something about religion, something about monarchy, something about Protestantism. Yeah. But And I, I, just to reinforce your point, Daryl, I mean, I, I think that's is an especially acute observation when you look at the history of the four kingdoms in in what what is or what was the united kingdom um because while obviously religious nationalisms have played important roles in these islands uh, the monarchy sits very differently in each of them so mm -hmm. you know the queen is the supreme governor of the church of england uh, a largely symbolic function she has no symbolic role in the church of scotland except to send uh, a representative this year um prince william to the general assembly uh, every May, uh, and then in Ireland, you know the the Church of Ireland has been disestablished. There is no real relationship with the Crown. I think the similar situation for the Church in Wales as well. So, I, I suppose it's it's funny that I, I live, as you know, in the part of the UK where the monarchy is perhaps most revered, and and where the monarchy is perhaps most central to a form of religious nationalism, uh, and yet formally. The Queen has no relationship with any Irish denomination. Hmm. It's curious. Yep. Maybe we're just Americans. 
Well, a lot of uh, Ulcermen over here who did pretty well. You could come join us. <laughs> Make me an offer. <laughs> I'll see you. Okay. Good to talk.